After the fall, human beings have sin-sick hearts, and those hearts produce all manner of contrary desires. This is just so important for us to understand. Our culture today tells us to trust our desires. Our culture treats desire as authoritative. If you feel this way, then God must intend for you to live this way. No, right? That is that is disastrous counsel. The, the message of the Bible is that your desires are fallen. They are twisted. They are affected. And you should not listen to them. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. After the fall, human beings have sin-sick hearts that produce all manner of contrary desires. That's not something that we're hearing in our culture, but as we discover today in Genesis 4, that is something that is taught consistently in the Scriptures. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Genesis chapter 4. In the first episode of this series, I mentioned that most scholars understand the book of Genesis as having two main parts. Chapters 1 to 11 tell the story of God and the world, and chapters 12 to 50 tell the story of God and the family of Abraham. I went on to mention that within section 1, the story of God and the world, chapters 3 to 11 collectively tell the story of the world falling away from God and into conflict with one another. And that theme is front and center in this chapter. While chapter 3 did end with a note of hope, right? God still loves people. Jesus is coming. Nevertheless, now we come to understand that we may have to fall very far indeed before we are rescued. And the descent has just begun. We'll start reading at verse 1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, here it appears that Eve thinks that the exile is over and the promised child has come, right? I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Eve thinks that Cain is Jesus, okay? But he's not. Not by a long shot. Verse 2 says, And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now, this passage introduces an important theme in the Bible, the theme of sibling rivalry. Remember, sin poisons every human relationship, even our closest relationships, most particularly our closest relationships. Cain and Abel become symbols, almost, of sibling rivalry, and they won't be the last. We will learn about Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, and Joseph and all of his brothers. In the New Testament, we'll learn about the older brother and the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. All of these stories collectively illustrate how hard it is for brethren to dwell in unity. One of the consequences of the fall is that we struggle to love and to live with one another. 
Now, many people wonder uh, what it was specifically that sparked this particular episode of sibling rivalry. It obviously had something to do with their various offerings, but the text here doesn't tell us all we'd like to know. It doesn't tell us why specifically God was pleased with Abel's offering and not with Cain's. Now, the wording of the passage might offer a clue. The text says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So it sounds like Cain brought some, and Abel brought the first and the best, right? So one offering was meager and begrudging, and the other was joyful and generous, and that could be it. After all, the Apostle Paul said, God loves a cheerful giver. Now, thankfully, there is New Testament commentary on this particular passage here in Genesis chapter uh, 4. We must always remember that we can read the Bible backwards, right? The New Testament apostles had been taught by Jesus how to read the Old Testament. They were also filled with the Holy Spirit, who was taking things, John 16 says, from Jesus in his ascended and exalted state and giving those things to the disciples as further inspiration. Therefore, if an apostle says something about an Old Testament passage, we want to know what that is. That's going to be very helpful. And so it is here. The apostle to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So not only was Abel's offering cheerful and generous, it was also an expression of faith. It was motivated by gratitude for what God had done, and it was inspired by belief in what God would do. That's faith. And it was commended and accepted by the Lord. Cain's offering, given begrudgingly and withholdingly, as though hedging his bets, was not accepted. And he was upset about that. Verse 5 goes on to say, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. I love what Derek Kidner says about this. He says, if behind the serpent, the devil was discernible in chapter three, the flesh and the world come into view in the present chapter. I like that. That's a good word. Kidner is saying that it isn't just the devil that makes us sin. It's us, right? It's both really on the other side of the fall. Our hearts now as human beings are fallen and corrupt and confused. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The NIV has that as who can cure it, right? After the fall, Human beings have sin-sick hearts, and those hearts produce all manner of contrary desires. This is just so important for us to understand. Our culture today tells us to trust our desires. Our culture treats desire as authoritative. If you feel this way, then God must intend for you to live this way. No, 
right? That is that is disastrous counsel. The, the message of the Bible is that your desires are fallen. They are twisted. They are affected. And you should not listen to them, right? I mean, right after the fall, people are told not to treat their desires as authoritative. Eve was told, Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. No matter how you translate that, the Bible predicts that a woman will struggle with unhelpful desires related in some way to who she is and who her husband is. Those desires, if heeded, will lead her astray and into conflict. And now here in chapter four, we learn that it isn't just the woman who needs to be aware of this. Now Cain is told something very similar. God says to him, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. Cain too had a heart filled with contrary desires, but he was not to allow those desires to rule over him. Do you see how fundamental this issue of contrary desire is in the Bible? In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things, Philippians 3.19. Paul says that the people on the road to destruction are ruled by their bellies. They're ruled by their desires. They are still fallen and falling away from God and from one another. They see their desires and orientations as authoritative. They don't understand that ever since the fall, all people, men and women, are wrestling with contrary desire. This this is fundamental to the biblical worldview. But you will hear people today, Christians, so-called Christians, say, God gave me these feelings. Therefore, God must intend for me to live by these feelings. That is to completely ignore what the Bible says. The people who are led by their desires, their contrary desires, die by their desires. That's what the Bible says. And that is what we see illustrated in the story. We see a man mastered by his desire. We see a heart receptive to satanic suggestion. That's how sin happens on the other side of the fall. James 1.15 says, desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Do you hear that language? Desire conceives. So the human heart is like a human womb. It is a host to a certain type of seed. The devil provides the seed. He brings the suggestion. He whispers and injects the seed of sinful thought. And it finds a warm reception in a broken and fallen heart. That's how sin happens after the fall. But we must fight against it. Just as you can wage war against conception in the physical realm by various means and methods, so you can wage war against conception in the soul. And you must. But Cain does not. Verse 8 says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? (laughs) And the answer, of course, is yes. (laughs) We were created for each other. It is not good for a man to be alone. God made us for community. He made us for family and for tribe. He made us to bear one another's burdens, to be brother and sister to one another. But here we see only enemies. We see conflict. We see rivalry. We see jealousy. We see violence. And we see death. We see humanity in miniature. That is a powerful picture and one that we see validated every night when we turn on the evening news. Ours is a world in conflict. And according to the chapter, the roots of that go all the way back to the book of Genesis. That's right. Or maybe better, all the way back to the original fall. In the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. That's a picture of perfect community. But here in Genesis 4, on the other side of the fall, we see a family in crisis. And I think the point is that sin doesn't just affect us in terms of our relationship with God. It affects our relationships with other people, particularly with those closest to us. Marriage isn't what we expect it to be, what it ought to be because of sin. And family isn't what it ought to be because of sin. That's the message here. Sin is like a universal acid. It is working its way through the entire human story. And by the way, that's what theologians mean when they talk about total depravity. They aren't saying that human beings are as bad as they possibly could be. They are saying that sin has affected absolutely every aspect of the human condition, including our most intimate relationships. Hmm, That's such a good distinction. There are really two dynamics being explored here. Our relationship with God and our relationship with people. And we see massive fallout happening here in both of those areas. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's jump right back into the text. I almost don't want to, but uh, we need to see how this story ends. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Verse 10, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed. From the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, the wording of the text seems to suggest that Cain tried to bury the body of his brother in the ground, but as the old saying goes, your sin will find you out. Nothing remains hidden from the eyes of the Lord. The whole cosmos conspires here to out the sinner. Now, it is hard to know what to do exactly with the wording of God's curse in this passage. It is different than what we see in chapter 3. In chapter 3, the ground was cursed because of Adam, but here God says, you are cursed. That's different, and that's alarming. It might be fair to say that after Adam, all people are born leaning towards sin. That, that is the effect of what we call original sin. We are all born oriented wrongly and desiring wrongly and reaching out and leaning wrongly. But we are not cursed for leaning or desiring wrongly. After all, God had said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? It, it, it isn't as though Cain was condemned from the womb. But now he is condemned because now he has committed actual sin. So again, it it might be fair to say that after Adam, we are all born 
leaning in the direction of sin, but we are condemned for committing actual sin. Certainly, there is no word given to Cain that would cause us to hope for his future and restoration. Matthew Henry says here, God had mercy in store for Adam, but none for Cain. This is a heavy word, and Cain feels it. Verse 13 says, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain is allowed to live out his life, but he is away from the presence of the Lord, and there is no word given of his return. Kidner says here, it is the utmost that mercy can do for the unrepentant. Verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Now, I suppose we should probably pause here to answer a question that is frequently asked at this point in the story. Where did Cain get his wife? And it sounds like a zinger of a question, but it reflects our particular location in time and history. Scholars who take the Bible at face value generally suggest that Cain must have married one of his sisters. Now, that would not have been considered incest at the time. For one thing, this was long before the rules about marriage had been laid down in the book of Leviticus. Before the book of Leviticus is written, we see several people marrying sisters or half-sisters. Abraham, for example, married his half-sister, Sarah. Now, as to why this change was made in terms of the book of Leviticus, it's often suggested that just like when breeding animals, the longer a line persists, the more inbred it can become, and thus the more careful you have to be about breeding your animal to a relative. Thus, as the human species progressed, it became more important to regulate breeding habits, and so God did. The law became the standard by which we deem things inappropriate but they would not have seemed so before. Abraham would not have felt gross about marrying his half-sister Sarah. Why would he have? There was no law telling him to feel gross. Similarly, given the longer lifespans that we're dealing with in this part of the narrative, Cain would almost certainly have left the home of Adam and Eve and moved out long before this sister was even born. Therefore, when he came back, all he would have seen was a young woman of marriageable age. And again, there was no law telling him that it was wrong, and therefore he would have had no reason to feel gross or strange or awkward about it. We jump back into text verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. 
I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now here we're meant to see how rapid and how consequential is our falling away from God. Just a couple of generations after the garden, where a man and his wife were naked and unashamed. Now we have Lamech, a man who, who collects wives like trophies and who sings a song about violence. Oh, how humanity has fallen. We are not now what once we were. And yet, there remains hope because of the love and promise of God. Verse 25 says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Jealousy, violence, and murder has not finally thwarted the saving purpose of God. In this passage, we're introduced to the line of promise. It is through Seth that the promised child will be born. These last verses remind us that the purpose of God and the wickedness of man grow side by side in the world. One man sings about violence and death, while other people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the story of humanity. This is the story of redemption. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love what you said there at the end. The purpose of God and the wickedness of man grow side by side in the world. One man sings about violence and death, while other people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. That's still kind of the way the world works, isn't it? Yes. In fact, Jesus talked about that in the parable of the weed and the weeds. He said that both would grow together side by side in the world right up until the time of the harvest. So there is darkness here, but there is hope as well. There's a group of people who are holding onto the promises of God in a broken and fallen world. Amen. And I know we are going to hear about that next week in Genesis chapter 5 when we are introduced to Noah, a type of Jesus Christ. I can't wait to hear about that. In the meantime, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. See you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 